Good evening, good evening and welcome. Thrilled to have you all here. Uh, my name is Jamie Boskett. I'm the president and CEO here at the Historical Society. And um, it's my pleasure to welcome you all to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture and to the Robbins Family Forum for another in this remarkable series of evening lectures. And I can clearly tell that there's absolutely no interest in this remarkable book. Uh, this has been a sold out crowd for some time. And we're just really thrilled to have Rick back with us. Um, and to, to be able to discuss his, his new work. Uh, before we begin, a few announcements. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge on behalf of our board of trustees uh, who have just walked in, the reason we're a minute late, just walked in from our fall board meeting, where they raked me across the coals to make sure we're doing our work, but I think we are. Uh, and uh, the, on behalf of the board and our staff, um, we would really like to acknowledge the fact that this is the 27th annual Jave Harvey Wilkinson Jr. Lecture, one of the great traditions we have here in scholarship. Uh, as most of you know, the lecture is named in memory of a leading figure in Virginia banking history, and in fact, in the very history of this storied institution, Harvey Wilkinson. Uh, he was a man with a deep passion for prom promoting education at all levels, which is why, among many, many reasons, it's so fitting that these lectures carry his name and feature some of our country's most distinguished historians and writers and public figures. Uh, and they're here under his brand uh, here at the Historical Society. The series was made possible by the generous gifts to the society by the Wilkinson family. And I'm delighted that we have many of them with us tonight. I would like you all, Jay and your family, if you'd wave your hands and let us recognize you. There they are. And just on a personal note, I'd like to recognize Judge Wilkinson, who is just completing, this is his last board meeting in his six-year term on our Board of Trustees, and he has been a remarkable mentor and advisor and has welcomed me with open arms three years ago when I arrived. I'm just really pleased and thankful, and I know that you'll stay involved and active here. So thank you for your service. Now, if you'd all take this moment and silence anything that makes noise in your possession, <laughs> we are bound and determined to get through a full night without any disruption. This will be the night. I can feel it. Uh, so please silence those phones. And while you're doing so, I'd like to introduce Rick Atkinson. Uh, he has, of course, been here for previous lectures on his other books, including his very popular and successful Liberation Trilogy. Uh, they were among some of the best uh, participated in. As you can see, I think this new trilogy is going to be just the same. Rick was born in Munich, Germany, and the son of a U.S. Army officer, and he grew up on military posts. He holds a Master of Arts degree in English Literature from the University of Chicago. He served as a reporter, foreign correspondent, and senior editor for 25 years at the Washington Post. His assignments included covering the 101st Airborne during the invasion of Iraq, and writing about roadside bombs in Iraq and Afghanistan in 2007. Previously, he served as assistant managing editor for investigations. Rick's journalism career began at the Pittsburgh, Kansas Morning Sun in 1976. And in 1977, he moved to the Kansas City Times before then going on to the Washington Post in 1983. It was a good year. It was the year I was born. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Among his other assignments, he served as the Post's Berlin bureau chief, covering not only Germany and NATO, but also spending considerable time in Somalia and Bosnia. Uh, Rick, in addition to his liberation trilogy about the US Army in World War II, 
is the best-selling author of The Long Gray Line, a narrative saga about the West Point class of 1966. Crusade, a history of the Persian Gulf War, and in the company of soldiers, an account of his time with General David Petraeus in the 101st Airborne Division during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. His many awards include the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for History, the 1982 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting, and the 1999 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Awarded to, uh, to the Washington Post for a series of investigative articles and directed and edited by Atkinson on shooting uh, on, on shootings in the District of Columbia Police Department. Rick has served as the General Omar N. Bradley Chair of Strategic Leadership at the U.S. Army War College, where he remains an adjunct faculty member still today. Tonight, he will speak to us about his newest book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, Princeton 1775 to 1777, the first volume in his Revolution Trilogy. This is a history of America, American rebellion through 1783. The Washington Post declared, and I quote, for sheer dramatic intensity, swinging from the American catastrophes at Quebec and Fort Washington to the resounding and surprising successes at Trenton and Princeton, all told in a way equally deeply informed about British planning and responses, there are few better places to turn. I'm thrilled to read it myself, and I'm even more thrilled to welcome Rick Atkins here to the stage. Thank you all. Thank you, Jamie. Born in 1983. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> well, good evening. Thanks so much for asking me to be with you uh, again in Richmond tonight. Uh, I'm particularly honored to uh, give the Wilkinson Lecture. Thank you to the Wilkinson family and Judge Wilkinson. Uh, it is a great honor. Um, this is a terrific museum and one of the country's finest historical societies. I know them all, and I know that that is true. Um, you know, a, a great historical society, like a great museum, uh, can serve as a time machine. It can transport us uh, traveling to, a, uh, to distant eras and, and faraway places, and we're going to use that to to do, uh, do exactly that this evening. Uh, traveling to a place and a time of uh, bitter partisan rancor, uncertainty about the present, deep anxiety about the future, and savage political discord. And no, I don't mean we're going up I-95 to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> the last time I was uh, here in Richmond, I spoke uh, uh, about the third and final volume that I had just completed uh, in a 750,000-word trilogy about the American role in the liberation of Europe during World War II, a project that took me 15 years. And even before that last volume came out, I was pondering what to do next, and I kept thinking about uh, Jack London's advice that rather than sit back and wait for inspiration, a writer ought to light out after it with a club. The obvious thing would have been to pivot to the Pacific and do for that theater what I had done for the Mediterranean and Western European theaters in World War II, but that would have required me to start World War II all over again at Pearl Harbor or even earlier, 
that didn't have much appeal. And besides, I couldn't shake a personal fascination that I've had since I was a kid uh, with a different war in an earlier century. So I took my club and set out after it. Well, I've now completed the first volume, what I hope, knock wood, will be another trilogy. The British Are Coming opens with an extended prologue in June 1773, when King George III travels to Portsmouth on the southern coast of England for a four-day review of the Royal Navy. It's a fantastic, proud display of military muscle precisely a decade after the creation of the first British Empire with Britain's victory over France and Spain in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, as we call it. 1773 is the year the phrase, the sun never sets on the British Empire, was coined. Uh, the book ends with the two battles of Trenton and then the Battle of Princeton in early January 1777, which together resuscitated American hopes that had seemed all but extinguished at that point. Let me suggest that there is a lot to dislike about the Founding Fathers and the war they waged for American independence. The stirring assertion that all men are created equal did not, of course, apply to 500,000 black slaves, one in five of all souls who lived in the 13 colonies when those fine words were written in 1776. Nor was it valid for Native Americans or women or indigents. For the eight-year duration of the American Revolution, those who remained loyal to the British crown and even fence straddlers uncertain of the wisdom of armed rebellion against their government, often were subjected to dreadful treatment. Public shaming, disenfranchisement, confiscation, beatings, torture, exile, and sometimes execution. There were quite a few hanged. Some were imprisoned on Hudson River scows anchored below Albany or were lowered by windlass 70 feet below ground into an abandoned Connecticut copper mine into rock-walled cells known simply as hell. Partisan belligerence metastasized into civil war. John Adams later said, I would have hanged my own brother had he taken part with our enemies in the contest. Conformity, censorship, and zealotry flourished. In a defensive war waged for liberty and basic human rights, the Americans promptly invaded Canada in an attempt to win by force of arms what could not be won by negotiation and blandishment, a 14th colony. This was the first but hardly the last American invasion of a foreign land on the pretext of bettering life for the invaded. The enduring image of a yeoman farmer leaving his plow in the furrow to grab his musket and go off in defense of liberty is mostly mythical. During the Revolution, General George Washington rarely had more than 20,000 soldiers in his army and sometimes as few as 3,000, this in a country of two and a half million people. Especially after the initial martial enthusiasms roused at Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill faded in 1775, relatively few American men volunteered for military service, especially if it involved enlisting for the duration in the badly armed, badly fed, badly clothed, and often badly led American Continental Army. And yet, 
who would deny that the creation story of our founding remains valid, vivid, and often thrilling. Even in 2019, at a moment when national unity is elusive, when our partisan rancor seems ever more toxic, when the simple concept of truth is assailed, that story informs who we are, where we came from, what our forebears believed, and perhaps the most profound question any people can ask themselves, what they were willing to die for. Indeed, at least 25,000 Americans died in the cause, and perhaps many more. It's a larger proportion of our population to perish in any of our conflicts other than the Civil War. So what can we learn from that ancient quarrel? First, that this nation was born bickering. Disputation is in the national genome. <laughs> Second, that there are foundational truths that not only are indeed true, but are, as the Declaration of Independence tells us, self-evident. Third, that leaders worthy of our enduring admiration rise to the occasion with grit and wisdom and grace. And fourth, that whatever trials beset us today, we have overcome greater perils in the past, existential perils. That should be of great comfort. We're the beneficiaries of an enlightened political heritage handed down to us from that revolutionary generation after many subsequent struggles. It includes strictures on how to divide power and to keep it from accumulating in the hands of those who think primarily of themselves. We cannot let that heritage slip away. We cannot allow it to be taken away. We cannot be oblivious to this priceless gift or the hundreds of thousands who have given their lives to affirm and sustain it. Now, the American Revolution was not a war fought between regimes or dynasties for territory or the usual commercial advantages, but rather it was an improvised struggle between two peoples of a common heritage who have been gradually sundered by conflicting visions of what the world could become. The Americans eventually won by embracing fewer strategic misconceptions than the British did. Certainly, the rebels could be wrong-headed in believing they had greater economic leverage over the mother country than they actually possessed, for example, or in caricaturing George III, who sat on his throne for 60 years and was shrewder, more complex, and more admirable than the overbearing ninny who still dominates our imaginations and who will soon be mincing across the stage here in Richmond in Hamilton. <laughs> Yet George and his ministers made three critical miscalculations. First, that most colonists remain loyal to the crown, notwithstanding troublemakers in New England capable of rousing a rabble. Second, that firmness, including military firepower, would intimidate the obstreperous and restore harmony. And third, that failure to reassert London's authority in America would eventually unstitch the newly created, American, uh, newly created British Empire 
encouraging insurrections in Ireland, Canada, the Sugar Islands of the West Indies, India. It's an 18th century version of the domino theory that would later propel us into Vietnam. Britain also underestimated the difficulty of waging a protracted war across 3,000 miles of open ocean in the age of sail for eight years, as it turned out. Expeditionary warfare, whether waged in North America in the 18th century or in Central Asia in the 21st century, is among the most difficult of martial enterprises. The British Army in the Revolution, unable to gather food and forage from the American countryside without being ambushed, relied largely on provisions shipped from English and Irish ports. But of 40 transport vessels dispatched across the Atlantic during the winter of 1775-76, only eight of those 40 reached British troops in Boston directly. The rest were blown by gales back to Britain or blown to the West Indies or were intercepted by rebel marauders. A 550 Lincolnshire sheep carried aboard ships that actually made it to Boston. Only 40 of those 550 arrived alive. Of 290 hog ship, just 74 arrived alive. When the British moved to New York in the summer of 1776 and requested 950 horses to pull their artillery carriages and their supply wagons so that they could move somewhere. 412 of the 950 horses shipped from Britain died during the crossing across the Atlantic. Scores more were ruined beyond use. Similar difficulties plagued the British for years. Logistics is always hard in war. I've personally seen how hard in Somalia, Bosnia, Iraq, in Afghanistan, other places. Even when the American rebels were fighting on their home turf, they faced enormous difficulties. Of 75 official letters that General Washington wrote in January and February of 1776, half of those letters mentioned munition shortages, often in pleading, fretful terms, particularly about gunpowder, which he just called the thing. It's difficult to make musket balls without lead. And by the summer of 1776, the Americans were desperately short of this stuff. In New York, more than 100 tons of lead weights from fishing nets and clocks and window sash cords were collected to make bullets, along with lead from downspouts and window cames and pewter dishes. Without salt, armies and navies couldn't stockpile the meat and fish needed to travel anywhere. Two bushels of salt, more than 100 pounds, were needed to cure 1,000 pounds of pork. Before the war, Americans imported 15 million bushels annually, half from the West Indies, the other half from Britain and Southern Europe. But when the shooting started, the British trade embargo strangled that supply, strangled 2 thirds of the supply. And to encourage salt works, Along the Atlantic coast, pamphlets were printed with salt-making recipes. All the old women and children are gone down to the Jersey shore to make salt, John Adams wrote in his diary. But 400 gallons of seawater are needed to procure to extract 
a bushel of salt, and that takes huge stacks of firewood. Virginia spent more than 6,000 pounds, a very large sum of money in those days, to build evaporation ponds along the Chesapeake Bay, but in the end collected only 50 bushels. It's probably the most expensive salt in the history of salt. <laughs> Yet those problems, substantial as they were, hardly matched Britain's problems. The thousand tons of bread required to feed British soldiers in New York often arrived from depots in Cork on the southern coast of Ireland, moldy and infested with Irish rats. And there's no rat as nasty as an Irish rat. <laughs> and those rats soon infested British storehouses on Staten Island. For the winter of 1776-77, the British needed 64,000 cords of firewood, 70 tons of candles. The daily allowance of a gill of rum for each redcoat, a gill was five ounces. It's about a gallon a month, which gives you an idea of inebriation problems in the British Army took an enormous amount of shipping space. The British Navy Board needed 400 transports and victualling ships to move and supply the large force in New York. It's triple the tonnage that had been required in the Seven Years' War, which was a global war. Let me talk for a moment about George, our last king. He's an intriguing adversary. Queen Elizabeth II only recently opened up to outside scrutiny the Georgian papers, which she owns, as part of a project to catalog and digitize the papers of the four Georges who became king in the 18th and 19th centuries. There are 350,000 pages, most from the reign of George III, and most of them previously unpublished. I was among the first in allowed to take a look for a whole month in April 2016 at Windsor Castle, just west of London, where the papers are kept. And every morning I would show my badge at the Henry VIII gate to get into the castle and show it again at the Norman gate and then climb 102 stone steps and 21 wooden stairs to the top of the round tower begun by William the Conqueror in the 11th century. And there are the papers in gorgeous oversized red binders. George was his own secretary until late in life when he began to go blind. He wrote not only most of his correspondence himself, he also made the copies himself. And as you paw through these pages, there's a tactile sense of being in his presence. Among other things, he's a great list maker. Lists of British garrisons abroad from 1764 to 1775 lists of Royal Navy vessels under construction in various shipyards, lists of all his regiments in America with the number of officers, musicians, and rank and file tabulated in columns with his arithmetic scratchings in the, in the margins as he does his sums. George copied out his own recipes for cough syrup, rosemary, rice, vinegar, brown sugar, all boiled in silver. And recipes for insecticide, wormwood, vinegar, lime, swine's fat, quicksilver. He was interested in everything from music and astronomy to horology, the study of time, to the use of manures in agronomy. 
He'd married an obscure, drab German princess, Charlotte, as in Charlottesville, as in Charlotte, North Carolina. She learned to play God Save the King on the harpsichord during the voyage from Germany to England. They married six hours after they met. He had the marriage bedroom decorated with 700 yards of blue damask and large basins of goldfish. Because nothing says I love you like a bowl of goldfish. <laughs> the happy union proved fertile. She produced children with lunar regularity, eventually to number 15. And we see in his personal correspondence that George is a caring father. He's invested in the rearing of his kids. And through all this, he's trying to figure out the proper course for the British Empire, for the monarchy, and for his people. He's easy enough to dislike, but impossible, I find, to detest or simply to dismiss as a reactionary autocrat. The war he chooses to wage, and he chooses to wage the war because he is the hardest of the hardliners in London. That war is brutal, bloody, and often savage. Unlike modern war, killing in the 18th century is usually intimate, at very close range, face to face, often with a bayonet. And that's partly because 18th century muskets were mostly inaccurate beyond 80 yards and mostly hopeless beyond 100 yards. Scholars have calculated that in the fights at Lexington Concord and the British retreat to Boston on the first day of the war, April 19, 1775, the rebels fired at least 75,000 rounds, but only one in every 300 actually hit a redcoat. The shot heard around the world probably missed. <laughs> Battlefield wisdom held that it took a man's weight in bullets to kill him in the 18th century. And in the revolution, that's not far wrong. On the other hand, massed musket fire, clusters of men firing in volleys, sending swarms of one ounce lead slugs traveling downrange at maybe 1,000 feet a second, that could be devastating. A man five feet, eight inches tall, a little bit shorter than I am, had an exterior surface of 2,550 square inches of which 1,000 square inches were exposed to gunfire when facing an enemy frontally at close range. Given the primitive inadequacy of 18th century medicine, which is hardly worthy of the name, if you're hit in the torso, you have more than a 50% chance of dying. If you're hit in the head, your chances of survival are even worse. By the way, later studies by the British Army demonstrated that soldiers wearing conspicuous red uniforms were more than twice as likely to be shot in combat as those wearing muted blues and grays. Duh. American marksmen, particularly those few with rifles, which were more accurate than muskets, but were harder to load and couldn't carry a bayonet, 
Those marksmen learned to target the brightest of the red coats, those that were almost vermilion in hue, because they were usually worn by officers who could afford the more expensive dyes to make that coat pop. It was like wearing a big sign on your uniform saying, shoot me. <laughs> in the Battle of Bunker Hill, June 17, 1775, the British captured roughly a square mile of rebel-held territory at a cost of over 1,000 casualties, including 226 British dead. Now, the British are coming is not something Paul Revere called out while galloping through the Middlesex countryside in the very early morning of April 19th, 1775. That wouldn't have made sense to people who at that moment still thought of themselves as British. What he's quoted as shouting over and over again is the regulars are coming out, meaning the regular British army coming out of Boston. But I use the British are coming as a title because it's a metaphor for what those first couple years of the war are about. The British are coming relentlessly, with most of their ferocious professional army, with almost half of the greatest fleet the world has ever seen, with 30,000 German mercenaries, the Hessians, and they're coming to kill your men, rape your women, plunder your homes, and in some cases, burn your towns to ashes. It's a dire thing. Well, those are some of the nuts and bolts of 18th century warfare. But what are the emotional guts of the revolution? That's what still moves us, stirs our pride, makes us feel that those people of more than a dozen generations ago have something to say to us. Why is that? Well, certainly that revolutionary generation can seem so distant as to be almost a foreign people. If irony and skepticism are the twin lenses of modern consciousness, the revolutionaries often seem archaic. They're much less ironic and skeptical than their 21st century descendants. They speak English, of course, but they have their own argo, idioms, their own slang. For example, passing counterfeit money, widely practiced in the 18th century, was known as shoving the queer. Someone who died took heaven by the way. British soldiers in Boston, by the way, sometimes referred to Americans derisively as Jonathans. But those are minor differences. We rightly admire those Americans for their endurance, pertinacity, and sacrifice, not only displayed by men serving in the ranks, but by others swept up in the fraught events of those times. Lois Peters of Connecticut hadn't seen her husband, Captain Nathan Peters, in months when she wrote to him, pray come home as soon as possible. A visit from you at any time would be agreeable. <laughs> Meanwhile, she would harvest the corn, sell their oxen for enough cash to keep the family saddlery solvent, sew him a shirt and take great pleasure doing it, she told him, and keep faith with the future. She signed her letters, your loving wife until dead. <laughs> General Nathaniel Green, Quaker anchor smith from Rhode Island, 
makes one of the worst operational decisions of the war by leaving 3,000 American troops exposed and vulnerable at Fort Washington on Manhattan Island. We're in the space of eight hours on November 16, 1776. They're trapped and killed or captured. This is during a period when American generalship is often characterized by miscalculation, mischance, imprudence, and deficient military skills. But Green picks himself up, takes a deep breath, and writes to Kati, his wife, the virtue of the Americans is put to a trial. I am hardy and well amidst all the fatigues and hardships. Be of good courage. Don't be distressed. All things will turn out for the best. Be of good courage. He's speaking to us, to you and to you, and he's certainly speaking to me. The sheer drama of the revolution keeps it compelling and often thrilling. From the bloodletting at Bunker Hill, where one in every eight British officer to die in the long war died in four hours. To the skin of the teeth escape by Washington and his army across the East River in the fog in late August of 1776 after a terrible drubbing on Long Island. Beyond the battlefield, the theatrical power and pathos of the revolution surely outruns any dramatist's imagination. The abrupt arrival of the septuagenarian Benjamin Franklin in Paris in December 1776 to woo the French absolute monarchy into an alliance with radical Republicans. The 100,000 smallpox deaths in North America from 1775 to 1782. Those white men in Philadelphia in the summer of 1776 lashing at horseflies with their handkerchiefs while carving up Thomas Jefferson's draft declaration to make it shorter and much better. The many American families, Ben Franklin's among them, ripped apart by irreconcilable political differences. Now, if the central figures of our creation story have frequently been embalmed in reverence, they nonetheless remain beguiling, worthy of our perpetual scrutiny and often of emulation. Washington, Virginia's greatest native son, is a case in point. Yes, he owned more than 300 slaves when he died at Mount Vernon in 1799. You cannot square that circle morally. He demonstrated shortcomings as a tactical commander at Long Island, Fort Washington, and on other battlefields. The man who proverbially could never tell a lie sure could prevaricate. <laughs> and Washington's carping about his troops, his officers, and his lot in life, I distrust everything, he grumbles in 1776, transforms the demigod into a sometimes petulant mortal. Yet great responsibility enlarges him. He rightly embodies the sacrifice of personal interest to a greater good, as well as other Republican virtues, small r, probity, dignity, moral stamina, incorruptibility, traits that should remain true north for every citizen today, traits we should demand in our leaders at all levels. 
Now, the first couple of years of the American Revolution that I described in this book certainly brought bitter lessons to Washington, lessons that will be familiar to some of you who've had military experience. That war was rarely linear, preferring a path of fits and starts and ups and downs, triumphs and cataclysms. That only battle could reveal those with the necessary dark heart for killing, years of killing. That only those with the requisite stamina and aptitude and luck, luck, the trait that Napoleon most cherished in his generals, only those would be able to see it through. And finally, the hardest of war's hard truths in 1776, that for a new nation to live, young men must die. Often alone, usually in pain, and sometimes to no obvious purpose. Washington, more than anyone, would be responsible for ordering those men to their deaths. His faith gave others faith. His strength made others strong. As commanding general of the Continental Army, the indispensable man leading the indispensable institution, he also demonstrated a shrewd understanding of the refractory independent people known collectively as Americans. Washington wrote in 1777, a people unused to restraint must be led. They will not be drove. He was a leader. Well, lesser personalities largely lost to history speak to Americans in the 21st century of constancy and an antique patriotism. Heaven only knows what may be my fate Captain John McPherson wrote in a last letter to his father before being killed at Quebec. I experience no reluctance in this cause to venture a life which I consider is only lent to be used when my country demands it. Likewise, Lieutenant Samuel Cooper wrote to his wife, the danger, dangers we are to encounter I know not, but it shall never be said to my children, your father was a coward. He, too, died at Quebec. Even Benedict Arnold, perhaps the finest battle captain on either side in the first couple of years of the war before his subsequent issues, <laughs> wrote after being shot in the leg in Canada, I am in the way of duty, and I know no fear. Some years ago, the distinguished historian John Shy, who taught at the University of Michigan for eons, wrote that the Civil War, like every other major event in American history, including the Second World War, has a tragic human, two-sided quality that the revolution seems to lack. The whole complex of revolutionary events takes on a smooth, self-contained character that makes getting the right emotional grip on the subject very difficult. My premise is that the bedrock of every war is tragedy, because every war is about young men and sometimes now young women dying young. My ambition has been to find that emotional grip, as Professor Shai put it, to revive the tragic human multi-sided quality that saturates the American saga from 1775 to 1783. So we see Lieutenant Edward Hull, a young Scottish officer in the 43rd Regiment of Foot, 
shot at Northbridge in Concord, then shot again during the British retreat to Boston, captured by the Americans in agony from three bullet wounds, sucking on an orange donated by a compassionate rebel. He lingers for nearly two weeks in a twilight of pain and remorse, and then he too takes heaven, by the way. Oh, we see Mary Pierce, the widow of a private killed at Bunker Hill while fighting with the Massachusetts militia, as she petitions the Commonwealth for precisely five pounds and 12 shillings in compensation for her husband's lost coat, trousers, stockings, shoes, buckles, silk handkerchief, knife, and tobacco box. Or General Richard Montgomery, commander of the assault on Quebec, hit by grape shot through both thighs and mortally through the face. His effects were auctioned off to his officers a couple days after his death, item by item. Two volumes of Polybius, Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language, a buffalo skin and clothes brush bought by Captain Aaron Burr, and a wardrobe that included ruffled shirts and holland waistcoats and a pair of tetons, all bought by Benedict Arnold. Or we see Ile Noir, the island of nuts. It's a couple hundred acres in the Richelieu River just above the New York border, where thousands of American soldiers retreating from Canada in the summer of 1776 jammed a malarial hell, half of them suffering from smallpox, dysentery, typhus, some other god-awful malady, infested with lice and maggots. One doctor wrote, we had nothing to give them. It broke my heart and I wept until I had not more power to weep. And we see Matthew Patton of Bedford, New Hampshire, whose son John had survived a gunshot wound to the arm at Bunker Hill, but did not survive, Illinois. Mr. Patton wrote simply in his diary, I got an account of my John's death of the smallpox at Canada. He was 24 years and 31 days old. And of course, entire towns are obliterated during the fighting. You may know that during the British assault on Breed's Hill, which we call Bunker Hill, in June 1775, the decision was made by the British High Command to bombard Charlestown which is across the river from Boston, because American snipers were firing into the flanks of the King's troops. And Royal Navy vessels will, will conduct the bombardment from the Charles River, along with 24-pounder field guns set on high ground in Boston, where Major General John Burgoyne has taken his post. And the shells they fire include carcasses, each packed with gunpowder, Swedish pitch, saltpeter, and tallow. And the Charlestown Meeting House, with its slender, towering steeple, is identified as a conspicuous aiming stake. Here's my account of what happens next. The first shell fell short, bursting near the ferry slip. Gunners corrected their elevation, and within minutes, the hole was instantly in flames, as Burgoyne would write. Fire loped through Charlestown streets like a thing alive igniting buildings at the foot of Chestnut Street and around Malden Shipyard. Other structures along the docks followed in quick succession. Distilleries, a tannery, warehouses, shipwrights, a cooperage. Fire climbed the pitched roofs, a grand and melancholy sight, one loyalist wrote, then licked through houses away from the waterfront 
and up to the marketplace, incinerating the courthouse and the Three Cranes Tavern. North of the market on Town Hill, more houses and another distillery caught fire. The light breeze shifted from southwest to east, as it often did on fine summer days, and flames drove lengthwise through Charlestown. Fire ignited more wharves and a ship chandlery. Ebony smoke rose in a column as wide as the town, then hung like a thundercloud over the contending armies, an American officer reported. Rebel musketmen scurried from the burning buildings to hide behind stone walls or on Breed's Hill and in a nearby barn. The church steeples, being made of timber, were great pyramids of fire above the rest, wrote Burgoyne, who had a way with words. The roar of cannon, mortars, musketry, the crash of churches, ships upon the stocks, the whole streets falling together in ruin to fill the ear. All in all, he added, the conflagration was one of the greatest scenes of war that can be conceived. Gawkers and gapers climbed not only Boston rooftops and hillsides, but the masts of ships in the harbor. Loyalists and patriots perched together, mesmerized by the sight of a town immolated. Here, once again, was an ancient squalid secret. That war was an enchantment, a sorcery, a seductive spectacle like no other, beguiling the eye and gorging the senses. They looked because they could not look away. Some 232 houses in Charlestown and 300 other buildings were incinerated, and the episode foreshadows other incinerated towns like Falmouth on the coast of Maine and Norfolk down the road here. The historian Bruce Catton considered the Civil War a redemptive tragedy. Surely the same can be said of the American Revolution. It embodied the enduring aspirations of an idealistic people and brought forth a nation abounding with a sense of destiny. No wonder the world was agog. The cause of America, wrote the essayist Thomas Paine, is the cause of all mankind. Even now, the war for independence offers clues to our national temperament. It remains a bright mirror in which we see traits that fashion the American character, from ingenuity and resilience to brutality and pugnacity. We've come far in almost two and a half centuries in power, diversity, tolerance, and sheer scale. But in some respects, those ancestors remain nearer than we know. Their existential struggle churned up issues that perplex us to this day, including individual liberty versus collective security, the proper limits on executive power, the obligations of citizenship, and the elusive quest for a more equitable society. The tacit primal question of 1776 remains in 2019. Who do we want to be? Democracy is never a thing done, the poet and librarian of Congress, Archibald MacLeish, told us. Democracy is always something a nation must be doing. Even Jefferson's Declaration, our foundational secular scripture, we hold these truths to be self-evident 
is dynamic, never a thing done, something a nation must be doing. The great Yale historian Edmund Morgan wrote that the creed of equality did not give men and women equality, but invited them to claim it. Invited them not to know their place and keep it, but to seek and demand a better place. The American Revolution lasted 3,089 days. The result was epical and enduring. Creation of the American Republic among mankind's most remarkable achievements. Nearly 90,000 more days have elapsed since those horsefly swatting men asserted a human birthright of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Keeping faith with those who fought, suffered, and died for the principles we profess to still cherish requires more than a nodding acquaintance with them, more than a perfunctory acknowledgement of their struggles. For better and for worse, their story is our story. Their fight remains our fight. Thanks again for having me here this evening. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for that. Well, we have uh, time for questions, comments, brickbats. If you wait till we get a microphone to you so everybody can hear what you have to say. Uh, Mr. Atkinson, I read your trilogy on World War II, and it was an excellent work. My question is this. In what ways, if any, did your research for this current book that you just finished uh, change your original perception of the American Revolution? Well, I knew relatively little about it compared to the mastery I felt that I'd come to with the American role in the liberation of Europe. So it changed my perception a lot because I learned a lot. I think one of the things that continues to surprise me, and I'm now researching the next volume of this, uh, is the uh, British misconceptions about who we are, who we were, who we still are. Um, you realize that over the course of 150 years, uh, the, the British had really come to not know us. Um, the British believe in 1775 that colonies exist for the betterment and for the wealth creation of the mother country, full stop. The colonies don't exist for the betterment of the people who actually live in them or for their aspirations for the future. Now, that can cause you all kinds of problems in the long run when you're dealing with fractious, rebellious people. Um, the insistence that George and his ministers have, and it's shared by hefty majorities in Parliament, both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, and also shared, it must be said, by a majority of 11 million British people that if the American colonies are permitted to separate from the mother country, it's the end of the British Empire, is really quite uh, extraordinary. And you see George repeating this erroneous assumption uh, almost to the end of the war. Um, so I think that one of the things that continues to um, 
amaze me, actually, is the extent to which uh, Britain is misinformed. Now, George, king for 60 years, he never leaves England in his entire life. He never even goes to Scotland. (laughs) And none of his ministers have ever been to America. They are widely ignorant of what the Americas have become, particularly the 13 American colonies. And uh, that ignorance is going to prove fatal to them. I loved your talk. Thank you. But would you comment on General Hugh Mercer, who uh, lived in Fredericksburg? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Mercer, Scottish immigrant, seems to have been on the lamb from something in Scotland. Um, and where else do you go when you're on the lamb? Virginia. <laughs> and he had a medical practice and was uh, you know, active in the militia, was friends with Washington, uh, actually gave advice to, uh, the, to Washington's mother, uh, medical advice. Um, And he um, finds himself commanding a Virginia unit in uh, the end of uh, 1776, the beginning of 1777, and he is uh, at the the forefront of the attack on Princeton. And you may remember that Washington, in desperation really, because he's got nothing left to lose at this point, crosses the Delaware River on Christmas night, 1776, and quite adroitly attacks the Hessian garrison that's in Trenton. It's about 1,000 men, and totally surprises them, totally routs them. It's 1,000 Hessians who are uh, either killed or captured, few get away. Uh, And then Washington, and this is the confounding thing to me, he doubles down. He crosses back into Pennsylvania, taking his booty and his prisoners with him, and then crosses the Delaware again in early January of 1777, and uh, goes to Trenton, which is unoccupied at this point, and gulls the British into attacking him in Trenton, where he is well-established, he has good ground. The British attack, they are severely punished for this attack, but uh, during the night, this is now early January 4th, uh, 1777. Washington slips around the British left end and heads in the d- wrong direction. He's not going back to Pennsylvania. He's not going south to safety. He can't get across the Delaware. It's full of ice. And he goes east to Princeton because he knows, he has good intelligence, that the British rear guard is there. And General Mercer is leading uh, part of the force that heads toward Princeton. Uh, the, the, British, the British put up a pretty good fight. It's a confused melee that lasts for about 45 minutes, and Mercer is uh, severely wounded, bayoneted repeatedly. I talked about the intimacy of warfare. Mercer's Exhibit A. Um, he wasn't expected to live the day, and he ends up living for, I think it was 12 days. You talk about lingering for two weeks in, a, in agony. Um, as a doctor, he knew, and he was treated by Dr. Benjamin Rush, sometimes considered the father of American medicine, who was a Philadelphia physician who treated the battlefield wounded and, and saw Mercer. And uh, Rush thought that Mercer was going to recuperate against all odds. 
And Mercer, uh, apparently, this is according to Russia's uh, account, pointed to a bayonet wound under his arm and said, no, this is the one that, that's going to get me. And it did. And, it, and he died. So he's, he's an extraordinary figure uh, and one of those who sadly isn't around to see the fruit of his sacrifice. Um, the digital archiving, I just uh, read a book by Vogel on War of 1812, and he's, and you're referencing a little bit. I was astounded that he's got uh, quotes from enlisted men and farmers, and I assume that's uh, part of the ability now to have wide access through digital. Could you speak to how how you use it, where you go to to get that information and how, uh, how well it seemed to uh, aid your writing and so forth. Yeah, sure. Um, well, digits are good. Um, the, uh, the one thing, uh, thanks to um, the extraordinary effort by uh, Google and a number of universities, uh, um, and various projects, um, it seems at times that virtually every book that is out of copyright, which is every book published before, I think it's 1927, is available online. They're very nicely uh, uh, digitized. And it saves you from having to go to the Library of Congress. Some of these things are very, very obscure and hard to find even if you do go to the Library of Congress or other big libraries. So that's one thing that has really changed the game. Um, and it's made, you can cover a lot of ground without ever leaving the comfort of your, your desk and you're taking off your bedroom slippers. Um, the, you know, I was used to uh, dealing with the archive that, um, has accumulated from World War II, and it's staggering. The U.S. Army official records alone from World War II uh, are said to weigh 17,000 tons. That's a lot of paper. <laughs> and uh, with 16.1 million Americans in uniform, just Americans in uniform in World War II, uh, it seems like all of them kept diaries, partly because it was prohibited. <laughs> or wrote letters, or wrote poetry, or whatever. There's a, just a huge paper trail. And of course, uh, you know, not all of them are literate, but most of them are reasonably literate. Now you compare that 16.1 million Americans in World War II to the Revolutionary War, maybe 200,000 serve in uniform for the, uh, our cause. Um, literacy is high. It's higher than it is in the British Army, way higher than it is among the Germans. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the paper trail that they leave is much smaller. Now, the founders, Jefferson and Adams and Washington, the rest of them, they have enormous volumes of material that they've written, and it's been beautifully curated by the University of Virginia in the case of Washington's papers, and is available online. Um, but for the average private or lieutenant out there, it's kind of catch as catch can. Did whatever he wrote survive? Maybe, maybe not. If it was written on paper, paper is perishable. 
Um, so, you know, what you find is a much skimpier record. And that doesn't even address the issue of those people who leave virtually no footprint, 500,000 black slaves, women. God, I would give my eye teeth for 10 uh, uh, of, of John Adams' wife, because she's the smartest of the bunch. Um, Native Americans, virtually no trace left of them, particularly in terms of, of their testimony about what their lives were like during these fraught events. So, you know, my job is to tease out what I can to not only rely on my ability to access things digitally, but to go to archives around the country and really around the world. Uh, and there's some great ones. Uh, you've got a lot of stuff here in this uh, museum, but the Massachusetts and New York Historical Societies, the largest collection of 18th century materials, particularly that relating to the American Revolution, that's in America, is in Ann Arbor. You didn't know Michigan was one of the 13 colonies. <laughs> because a rich industrialist named William Clements, who was also a great collector, began buying up among other things, British generals' papers. Their families often had fallen on hard times, uh, and they were willing to sell them for a song, and Clemens would buy them and bring them back to Michigan, where he lived, and the University of Michigan has built an entire William Clemens library for this stuff. So the papers of Thomas Gage, the commanding general in Boston when the revolution begins, they're in Ann Arbor. The papers of, of George Germain, former British general, becomes the American secretary. He's kind of the Robert McNamara of the war for the British. His papers are in Ann Arbor. And there are lots of other examples, too. So um, yeah, digitizing helps, but there's uh, no uh, escaping the necessity for, to go and paw through the papers, including climbing 102 stone steps and 21 steps. <laughs> Jamie says, that's it. We're, we're out of time. Thank you again so much. Thank you.